I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Life on Our Planet. This is the story of the great battles of survival and the dynasties that would take over the world. This is the story of life. Today, we're talking to series producer Dan Tapster and producer Sophie Lanfear. Every living creature, from ant to redwood, from woolly mammoth to T-Rex, can trace its origins to a single cell four billion years ago. But the long march of evolution took many twists and turns. Whether fish or amphibian or reptile, one creature would rise to the top, only to be wiped out in one of five mass extinctions. And each time, the fittest among them would rise and inherit the Earth. Using cutting-edge special effects, life on our planet brings alive a menagerie of long-extinct creatures portrayed with scientific accuracy and visual brilliance. From amoeba to man, the series journeys through time and tells the stories of who survived and who didn't. There are more than 10 million species of plant and animals alive today, and yet they are just 1% of all species that have ever existed. By traveling back in time, We'll meet many of the 99% that have gone extinct to reveal the most extraordinary story of all, the story of life on our planet. And I'm joined now by producers Dan Tapster and Sophie Lanfear. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, nice to meet you. So this is a nature documentary like no other. And I'm curious, Dan, where did the idea of creating this series come from? That's a good question. We felt that when we were making Our Planet as Silverback Films, we wanted to try and push the envelope, make the next big thing. And Netflix really challenged us to be as ambitious as possible. And so we looked at the kind of range of stories we thought we could do, and we honed in on the story of life, which is the greatest story of them all, but it's also very, very difficult to tell. And so we talked amongst ourselves whether we were ready to tell it in the sense of, was there enough scientific progress to be able to tell the story without the missing links? And crucially, were the VFX good enough to be able to deliver the show that we needed? And that was back in 2016. And by 2018, the show was up and running and we were ready to give it a go. So, Sophie, obviously, this is all about the amazing visuals and a lot of it is visual effects, not all of it. So how big is the team that worked on this? I know that you said you just said it took many years to create, but how long did it take to animate the episodes? How big was the team? I just I could just imagine like warehouses full of people as I was watching this. Yeah, it was a huge team. And for us, you know, we're we're used to working in quite small teams, actually, to pull off something like our planet. And this was involving big players globally. So we had Amblin Television, um, who we partnered with, and also the amazing Industrial Light and Magic sort of doesn't need any explaining, I don't think, that one. But um, they have huge teams their side. So it was this merging of these worlds and these huge teams. But not only that, we had the, the scientific community too. So we had to kind of pan four billion years of evolution. And of course, that's quite a lot of different characters, a lot of different time zones, eras. And so the scientific community were essential in in that as well. And I think 
the series, we had over 165 scientists helping us kind of make this series as scientifically accurate as possible. We had 120 VFX people that worked on the show. And we had 440 people across the series that from field assistants to camera operators, editors, sound assistants, in-house production teams. So yeah, it's clocking up to, I'd say, close to a a thousand people probably to to pull this off. That's incredible. And one of the things that I just kept thinking about in terms of, you know, the visual effects sequences is that they have the same look, feel and movement and camera angles as nature documentaries like Our Planet, like the hunting scenes, the stalking scenes. And those are very different than the ILM scenes like in a feature film. I think they're very different. They have like sort of a more natural, organic feel. What was that like, that interaction between the scientists and the animators? Was that like a lot of conversation? Like these have to look and feel like nature documentaries with dinosaurs, not like action films with dinosaurs. Well, some of that, Rebecca, was not just about the sort of science at that point, but one of the things that's unique about life on our planet is it marries these two worlds, the worlds of natural history and the world of VFX, so modern day and extinct. One of the things we wanted to make sure was that viewers couldn't see the joints. And so we had to shoot our VFX in the same way as we shoot natural history, because natural history has a kind of grammar to it, the way it is shot. And so we then imposed that upon our VFX. And I suppose one of the ways we did that was by thinking, if we had access to a time machine, how would we go back and film these creatures? And we wouldn't do it in a classic Hollywood style where you might be six feet away from a T-Rex because you'd get eaten. <laughs> and I think that is part of the reason why it does seem believable. It has this veracity to it because it's using that kind of grammar. We didn't know how to do any of this. Most of us has never worked on a VFX show before, certainly nothing of this caliber. And so the first day one, it was like, right, how do we sit the two alongside each other so it feels seamless? And I remember thinking, going through it, we had to watch our natural history content in a totally different way. So we had to look at what we call rushes. And so when we film sequences in, in the wild, we bring back all that footage. And we were analyzing how we shot something to work out how do we add that in? What, what is it about the fabric of a natural history, a high-end natural history sequence that makes it what it is? And so we've sort of had to reverse engineer in a way our own work <laughs> and sort of take a look at it so that then we could explain that to Industrial Light and Magic. And Jamie McPherson, who was the VFX DOP, Director of Photography, he comes from that world. So he is a wildlife cinematographer. And so we were scrutinizing his rushes and analyzing them and looking at them. And then, of course, he was brought on board to keep that, that look consistent across the series, but also add his knowledge, because that's the other side of it, is understanding how creatures move and what they do in the wild was integral to making those VFX creatures believable on screen and so that they would act and behave in a way that was like wildlife today. And that was a process that we, it took a while to craft that, didn't it? And get that right. So obviously we couldn't have gotten this level of realism with VFX 15 years ago, but what about the scientific knowledge? You know, how much more do we know about these prehistoric creatures today than we did a couple of decades ago. Is, is that as the knowledge advanced there as well, where this series couldn't have been made 10, 15, 20 years ago? I think so. So the last series to attempt to tell the story of life was in 1979, which was David Attenborough's Life on Earth. And there were so many gaps in the scientific knowledge at that point that are now filled. So particularly about 
the things like the mass extinctions, exactly how they happened, how many of them were there, what were the processes that caused them, but also the animals themselves, what they looked like, what they sounded like, what their skin texture was, how they moved. We now know so much about the prehistoric world that working with scientists to rebuild it was actually one of the most exciting, but strangely not one of the most challenging parts because the fossil record is so well studied. There's a lot of information out there. So how do they know like about the mating dance of a T-Rex or about, you know, the behavior of dinosaurs? I mean, I know that there are a lot of fossils because dinosaurs were on the earth for a very long time, which is something that I'm not sure people necessarily comprehend, like the lengths of these eras of time. But how do they know about the behavior of these creatures? I'm going to I'm going to answer the thing just about the eras of time first, because one of the things <laughs> I love about life on our planet or loop, as we call it, is all of these bits of facts that we had never heard of that sound unbelievable. And my favorite about the dinosaurs is it would be more wrong to see a T-Rex hunting a Stegosaurus than it would to see a T-Rex walking around with an iPhone because <laughs> the difference between the relative time is so massive. There's so much you can interpret from fossils about the way an animal walks, the color of it, the texture of it, all of that sort of stuff. But there is this sort of concept that is perhaps a little bit of a myth that behavior doesn't fossilize because... You can get amazing fossils of, say, an oviraptor protecting its eggs to show that they had parental care, for instance. Or you can get great trace fossils of, say, a T-Rex trackway where an adult is walking next to two juveniles. And again, you can interpret family dynamics from that. Where that starts to break down, we use this process called phylogenetic bracketing. And that basically means that you look at the closest living relatives to the fossil that you're studying. And if the closest living relatives, most of them behave in a certain way, you can infer that the fossil you're looking at also would have behaved in that way. So with T-Rex, we knew that based on MRI scans of its jaw, it's got this huge number of sensory pits in its jaw, very much like a crocodile or an alligator. Those use those in a very tactile way during their mating displays. Similarly, there's other pieces of evidence that suggest that they behave very similarly to modern day birds. So when you put those bits of evidence together, then we were, again, working with our scientists, able to recreate this kind of courtship behavior to show an, a new side of T-Rex. It's often it felt like working on a police investigation drama at times, because it is, it is, you're piecing together all these bits of evidence from skeletons to trackways to modern kind of examples and yeah you're having to work out where are the gray lines what's fact what what is more gray i guess so yeah it was fun but you also have to make something that we want to look at and watch and i'm, I'm even curious about like the backgrounds sophie was that a combination of photography and special effects because the backdrops of these dinosaur scenes and these other creatures prehistoric creature scenes were like astonishing and real so i i was that a combination of things well, we decided to shoot real backplates. So the backgrounds are all shot for real in the real world environment rather than going with a CG background, for example. And the reason we decided that quite early on in the process was because the more that we could have that was real within shot, the more real and believable that world would feel. So when you put the creatures into those shots, you're creating these sort of worlds that um, are very tangible and very real. But it led to lots of other problems because obviously we had to pick locations that looked prehistoric and felt prehistoric. 
And one of the biggest learnings for me was that grass is actually very new to the planet. Um, it, it evolved around 66 million years ago. And so trying to find anything that predates that time, we couldn't ha have any grass. And grass is literally, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's everywhere. And not only that, when you put a 1500 mil lens on something, it, it really is everywhere because it just zooms in. You're like, oh, there's blade of grass there, blade of grass there. So we sort of joked on the series that, you know, most of our time spent gardening, trying to clear the scenes so that we can make it feel prehistoric. So I'm curious, Sophie, I know that there's a choice, an editorial choice that's made in every nature documentary, like which animals do we feature? You know, what, what stakes are there and, you know, different species of animals? So how do you do that in a series like this with both present day animals and prehistoric animals? How do you choose which species to highlight? It's very tricky because, again, with this series, what was unique was that not only, you know, normally when you're filming a wildlife series, you're having to pick from the cast that's available to go and physically film. We're picking from a cast that existed millions of years ago and you have to check, you, you come across a great character and then you're like, okay, but what character can that interact with? Because the two had to coexist on the planet at the same time. So you have to double check, you know, you might want to put a cave lion next to some type of mammoth, but then you realize that that type of mammoth wasn't around in the same area at the same time as that cave lion was. So saber-tooth, for example, was one of those. We're used to the Ice Age films where we think saber-tooth cats exist alongside woolly mammoths, but in actual fact, they don't. They were around at the same time, but they were in different areas of North America. So there was that puzzle to sort of solve. And then, like you say, joining the kind of prehistoric creatures with the modern day ones, we knew that the the, the series couldn't be 100% VFX. And I sort of joined the project. I was thinking, how are we going to do this? How are we going to tell the story of life chronologically, but film modern day animals that obviously aren't prehistoric? But then the beauty was that you realize is that actually there's a lot of animals and plants that exist today that have that story that links back to the past. So for example, lichen, ferns, moss, these are all things you can see today, but they evolved way back then. Fungus was a big one. <laughs> the word, so fungus, yes, of course, fungus do. <laughs> then you start to work out your narrative of your film. So you, t you work out what the story is across your film that you're going to tell, and then you pick the best characters to tell that story. And it's amazing. It's amazing what we can see today in, a, in the world around us that links back to the past. And I think that's why the series is so relatable, actually, and so interesting. Because because without that, without seeing the modern things that you can reference, I don't think people will connect with it as, as yeah. well as they do. There are a lot of amazing things in life on our planet. There's great VFX, there's great natural history, the music is great, Morgan Freeman is there. But the best thing about it is its story. Because the story is almost unbelievable. And so when, when we were crafting episodes, when we were doing the sort of audition, if you like, of what VFX creatures go in, we focus on the ones that had a story to tell. So the first animal that ever came out of the water onto land was something that had to be in there. The first animal that ever started flying had to be in there. So when you look at these sort of groundbreaking moments some of the choices almost selected themselves. I mean, you have to show sharks hunting today. I mean, we have this apex predator in the ocean today that is, you know, connects to these prehistoric creatures, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a, and that's a great example that, as, as Sophie was saying, looking at today and seeing the legacy of history running through the lives that they now live and those sharks that sort of took the baton from Dunkelostius and now dominate our seas and sometimes even hunt in packs like we illustrate is, yeah, that's, that's part of the excitement. 
Well, you just mentioned him, so we have to talk about him. Um, It's not just the visuals in this that are remarkable. The narrator needs no introduction. Two million years ago, and our planet is a very different place. What does Morgan Freeman bring to a project like this? We always wanted Morgan from the get-go, I suppose because of the meme that he's the voice of God. It's like if, if there is ever something that is appropriate for this series. And so what he brought to the table was he's this amazing storyteller. He really made the whole thing come to life. And I think he did that because when we met him, we realized he was really passionate about it. He, he loved the story of evolution. He loved telling this story of life, but also... As we get towards the end of episode eight, one of Sophie's episodes, we focus on the sixth mass extinction. He really wanted to do that, didn't he? Yeah, he was like, when do we mess it all up? Can't wait for that bit. And it's like, don't worry, that's definitely coming. What was quite funny is he's very sort of playful, so playful that you sort of think, is this going to work? And then you put him in the booth and he reads the first line. It's like, oh, my God, that is Morgan Freeman. Yes. Iconic is the right word. I mean, he's Morgan Freeman as Morgan Freeman doing the thing that that you want him to do, which is the voice of God, which is, I I think, an appropriate meme for him. So you also mentioned the score, which I think is another star of the series. Who did that score? What were the marching orders for that score? Because at times it's like a Nolan-esque movie. At times it's playful. It really does, I think, without overtaking taking the series, it really, really plays an integral part in the action and the drama of the series. So the music is done by Lorne Balfe, who is a sort of prodigy from the Hans Zimmer group. Mm-hmm. He's done lots of things recently. He did Top Gun Maverick. He's done the Mission Impossible franchise. And I suppose we set him the challenge of making a score that seemed timeless. And I don't mean timeless in that it'll still sound good in 20 years, but timeless in the sense that It's not of an era because we wanted, again, to blend in that kind of old world with new. And he took that really vague brief and absolutely knocked it out of the park. And part of the way he did that, part of the thing I've really loved working with Lorne is he started using really unusual instruments. So some of those unusual instruments are like really old fashioned synthesizers that were used in Blade Runner, for instance, But also he started using ancient instruments. There's a Roman instrument called a carnyx that he uses. But probably the best one is somehow, and I don't know how he got hold of this, he got hold of a 3D printed model of a Neanderthal bone flute. Hmm. This is this instrument that dates back, I think, 55,000 years, the oldest instrument recorded. And in some of the cues, you can just get a hint of that. It sometimes seems like it's regular orchestra, but it's got this twist in it, which I think is giving it this sort of timeless nature we were after. And it's it's quite hard to write for natural history too, because again, there's such variance across the series of stories, emotional tones, character types, and then you've got to tie it all together and have these common themes too. So it feels like a cohesive series. Yeah, he did just such a great job of sort of navigating all those things that we were just throwing at him. I definitely heard the Blade Runner influence, but I did not like make the connection with the uh, 3D printed Neanderthal instrument. I will have to go back. <laughs> well, I have to I have to say actually that when he first said this is going to happen, we thought this is incredible. Like what what a way to go. And then he played it 
And it sounded <laughs> awful. Of course. <laughs> then he's like, don't worry, it'll only be in the background. You're like, more Blade Runner, please. Less Neanderthal instrument. Yeah. So, Sophie, of course, this is not all industrial light magic, as we've heard. You've got plenty of flesh and blood documentarians bringing us wildlife from six continents. What were some of the challenges that the real world photographers and crew faced making this series? Yeah, so I guess it's kind of yin and yang. You've got, on the one hand, very controllable VFX sequences where essentially, within reason, you can have the creatures do anything you want them to do. And then on the other hand, we've got the traditional natural history that is not like that. You know, the animals don't read the script and you have all that risk associated with you go out to film something and it doesn't happen or there's really bad weather or climate change has put a spanner in the works and the behavior that you thought was happening doesn't happen any longer. So yeah, the, the series was full of those. One sequence that I remember that was... A kind of a new one, again, because we weren't after new behaviours necessarily for this. We were after behaviours that represented the greater story. And there was Dragonflies in Programme 3 that we wanted to film the sequence that would have happened 350 million years ago in the swamps of the Carboniferous. Despite their current success, the ultimate flying insects first appeared back in the ancient swamps. Dragonflies. Because you had dragonflies flying back then and you had amphibians hunting them. And so this battle between these two great family dynasties still happens today. But they're exceptionally hard to film, actually. It's often the small stuff that is, is the hardest to film because they can fly so quickly. And when you're trying to point a camera at them, they're so small too. So you have to have a very long lens and point the camera at them. And by the time you found them, you've got to focus on them and then they've left the shot and they've gone. And then you want to slow their behavior down. So you've got to film them in high speed. And I remember it was lockdown and one of the best Emperor Dragonflies locations happened to be 20 minutes from our house in Bristol. And so Jamie McPherson was tasked during lockdown to sit in a swampy, boggy, disgusting pond, literally all day filming these dragonflies. So yeah, it's times like that where you kind of, questioning exactly what it is you're doing, what the goal is when you're kind of been sat for eight hours in a in a bog, essentially, with wrinkly skin. Well, I do want to thank you for one of those types of sequences. And, and since you mentioned the tiny creatures and having to slow things down, I have been trying to convince my family all summer that I have been watching hummingbirds fight. And it happens so quickly. And they fly away so fast that I'm the only person who has seen it. But you captured it on film. And so now I can prove to people that hummingbirds do, in fact, fight. And I really appreciate that. But I am curious, since you mentioned it, um, you know, you are telling stories of mass extinctions and these disasters. But you're doing this during a pandemic. Was that unnerving at times to, to be talking about these things during a global lockdown? Yeah, well, do you know the ironic thing? When firstly, the word COVID, which was new to us all at the time, didn't even know what that was, was announced. And then the idea of a lockdown was happening. We were actually editing the end of the series. And we knew that the end of the series wanted to feature the sixth mass extinction and humans. And so it was just this crazy thing where our headspace was totally in that world. And then we were like, right, so we've got to go home. We didn't, at that point, we didn't know if COVID literally was, would kill us all and how life-threatening it was or wasn't or what it was. I guess the formation of those last 15 minutes of the entire series was 100% set in that world. So there's something that I found myself wondering again and again. I interview a lot of directors of nature documentaries, and I've asked this question before. I know there's a tolerance that you have to think about with what audiences can watch in terms of like the circle of life, you know, like what kinds of animals can audiences 
watch being hunted and killed? And then when do we have to also balance it with a scene of a baby animal getting away? The Allosaurus will make quick work of the baby. If it can find her. The youngster's best hope is to stay as still as possible. Where do you draw the line when you're talking about computer-generated animals? Because I noticed that there was a scene where like a dinosaur got away, but then we also had the scene where, you know, the asteroid hit and we know they're all going to die. Spoiler alert. How do you, yes, how do you think about that, you know, in your editorial conversations when you're making a series like this? I think we approached it in a similar way to Natural History. I mean, as Sophia said earlier, we making sure that those two genres sat together as seamlessly as possible was as much about the sequence design as it was the way it was shot. And so we took it almost on a case-by-case basis. So, for example, we wanted T-Rex and the Triceratops to end in a stalemate, not because of any sort of gore rating, but because we wanted to show that actually even being a T-Rex is really difficult because the prey you need to catch is as supersized as you are. But conversely, then there were other moments where we wanted to show that now Deinonychus hunts as a pack, it can overcome anything. And so again, it it was a sort of story by story basis, really. I think it's also important to point out there are also baby T-Rexes, right? (laughs) They need to eat too. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, we always anthropomorphize, I think, a little bit with animals. We can't help it. And that's just the way I think we're wired. So one of the better known of the five mass extinctions has to do with that asteroid that struck the Earth 66 million years ago and put an end to the reign of the dinosaur. Less than an hour after impact, debris ejected into space is pulled back to Earth by gravity. I know that special effects engineers probably love to blow up the planet in a sci-fi adventure. What was it like storyboarding that sequence? Because I know that was the most rapid, probably, of the mass extinctions, right? Yeah, that was difficult because of some of the processes we've talked about. Because we had this rule on the show that... You had to film something as though you would travel back in time. But the exception to that was the KPG extinction, was the asteroid moment. There was no way to film that without being killed yourself, which was part of RMO. So that did become much more about sort of designing the scene. But even in that, what we tried to do was think, okay, where would we approach this from a natural history point of view? Well, we definitely would have cameras on the ground with some of these main characters We'd also probably be getting aerials, and ideally those would be quite high-altitude aerials. So again, using our grammar, we started to piece together how we could bring that scene to life. But it was it was challenging. I think obviously what's missing from the series, I'm not sure if it's missing because evolution isn't necessarily a part of this, but sort of like the, the dawn of man, the history of mankind isn't really a part of this. But do you think that people really understand what a tiny blip in the history of species on Earth, the existence of human beings is? Probably not. I mean, I think when you do the maths, there has been life on our planet for 4 billion years. Humans have been around for about 300,000. So I think that that is 0.0001% of the story. So we are, in the grand scheme of things, hugely insignificant. And that's part of what makes the end of episode eight so fascinating, that despite our insignificance, 
we're somehow doing more to the planet than any other thing that has lived before us. It's also so hard to get your head around the time periods. We have these little timelines that come up on the screen, which really helps kind of tell you where you are and if you're traveling back or forwards in time. But even then, it's trying to imagine what, you know, 50 million years feels like. It's, it's I think even we struggle with that, yeah. let alone someone just watching the show. Yeah. I mean, there are moments in the show where you're like, and just 10,000 years later, this happened. I'm like, just 10,000 years. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really incredible. But it is eye-opening that of the five mass extinctions, you know, neither the ice ages nor the asteroid were the biggest. It was the Permian mass extinction in which carbon dioxide from volcanoes caused this global warming, which killed 90% of all life on Earth. And that took tens of thousands of years. And in this final episode, you talk about how a sixth mass extinction won't take nearly as long. Sophie, can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I can. It's, it's striking because I actually made those two episodes where those two feature. So for me, the learning was quite stark, really, when you kind of know and read about it. So yeah, the permanent extinction is the biggest mass extinction event. It's also CO2 related. And so the analogies that you can draw with that and the one we are creating now which is also another CO2-related extinction event. The biggest difference between those is the time and rates at which that is happening. We kind of use a visual to try and get that across. We speed up the cutting and then it ends with the impact of the KT. So we kind of use flashback visuals, if you like, from the KT extinction because people kind of understand how rapid that is. And hopefully if Programme 6 gets across how rapid that day was for the dinosaurs, and then we, in program eight, we kind of explain that in a blink of an eye, we have literally changed the whole balance of the planet. And the rate at which CO2 release is happening is so rapid, even though in our single lifetime, you might not see it. When you compare it to the story of the evolution of life on Earth, which is what this series does so brilliantly, then I'm hoping that people will put two and two together, or you know, we can certainly spell it out, to, to understand that most of the mass extinction events, I think, have been related to CO2 levels. I mean, we just know that. It's fact. It's just, it's just what's so unique about this one is how quickly CO2 is rising. So the series does end with a shot of London, a city in ruins where its only you know, inhabitant is a dragonfly. But we also do see some plants and some wildlife sort of busting through the, the man-made architecture. Can you talk about this final imagery a little bit? Yeah. So again, that was debated quite a lot, wasn't it? How do we end this series? Do we end it on hope? Do we end it on something a bit less cheerful? What do we want people to kind of go away feeling and thinking? And and so after a lot of chat and back and forth and talking with Netflix, I think we all decided that it wouldn't be fair to sort of end with a positive, happy ending to the film. And that actually really our, our time on planet Earth will come no matter what happens. Humans will die out eventually. And so I think we felt that projecting to the future of what is quite could be quite a realistic future, given the learnings on on the rest of the series, to end with a world without humans there. But life itself will continue without us. I think for me, and maybe this just says something about me, I see it in a quite positive way. Because I think there's a lot of people who have climate anxiety. It's obviously in the news all of the time. And there is this idea that we are en route to destroying the planet. But actually, I find it somehow reassuring that actually we're en route to destroying our time on the planet. But actually, life will find a way. And we've, well, that's one of the most powerful messages through the series. It's been through events as bad and at times even worse than this. But life will make it. 
it's just that we wait. That's what I took away from it too. It's a cautionary tale, but only for us. It's called Life on Our Planet. Dan Tapster and Sophie Landfear, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to talk about it. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous series. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, yeah. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Dan Tapster and Sophie Landfear. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.